Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Our personal lived experience uh, as victims has to fuel our daily commitment to make sure others are safe. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. This is the season finale of our podcast. And as I prepare to bring everything I've learned from these conversations to what I hope will be an opportunity to make bold, progressive change in the Manhattan DA's office, I'm turning to one of our city's boldest progressive leaders, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Rabbi Kleinbaum is the head of New York's Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, or CBST for short, one of the country's first synagogues to welcome LGBTQ Jews. For decades, she's been a tireless fighter in the name of justice for all people. She has led coalitions and protests on behalf of Jews, immigrants, gay people, refugees, victims of police violence, and women, just to name a few. And she's done it all with a profound commitment to peace and compassion. As our city begins its transition out of a devastating season of loss toward a blossoming opportunity to build a more vibrant and inclusive future, I wanted to spend some time with Rabbi Kleinbaum to understand the origins of her commitment to empathy and nonviolence, no matter how volatile the issue. Among other things, she told me that her enduring belief in the power of our shared humanity has its roots in CBST's role in the AIDS crisis. For over 15 years, the synagogue helped fill the void left by the federal government's anemic response, offering resources, space for gathering, mourning, and joy amidst the suffering to Manhattan's gay community. 
So last year, as the pandemic plunged New York City into a new crisis, Rabbi Kleinbaum was ready. So when this plague hit, and I don't think it's overstating it to say that there are echoes, we understood how to react immediately. We started as a community, understanding that we needed to create ways of connection. And we learned from AIDS the power of the buddy system. And so immediately I created something which we now call Connectors in Community. We asked for volunteers in the synagogue. We have 85 volunteers at the t- that immediately responded to call every single member of the synagogue once a week to really check on people, to say, what do you need? Do you need help with groceries? How do you, just the sense of being present for each other was essential. I started a class last March 16th, actually, uh, four days a week of teaching Psalms in the morning, a hundred people, between 70 and a hundred people gather with me on Zoom. And we teach, we study, there's music, there's art, there's dance, all different expressions of what the Psalms mean and the building of community. One of the powerful lessons of AIDS was that we couldn't forget joy or laughter or creating art and beauty in the midst of the ugliness we all were experiencing. And we understood that gathering on Friday nights and Shabbat for services couldn't be overtaken with the grief of the pain of the losses we were experiencing. So we as a synagogue made a commitment on Friday nights We would not turn those into memorial services. We went to them all week long. We would sing. We would celebrate Shabbat with joy. We would remember the power of re-nourishing our souls with Shabbat as a place of joy and uh, access the sense of the divine in the universe no matter what. So we did learn a lot from that time, and it has fueled us in this moment as well. Rabbi, it's so arresting to hear you talk about this because... It, the grief and the death that are surrounding us feels unbearable. And I wonder, now that we seem to be toward the, if not the end, then some sort of stasis where this becomes something that we live with, uh, but uh, is not as acute as it was. What are the things that we should be thinking about uh, as New Yorkers, as a society, as we try to transition out past the strategies that you've described Well, one of the key things is to make sure there's a lot of ritual to remember those who have died. Over, I think we're now 30,000 in New York City, if I'm not mistaken. That's massive numbers. So ritual is really important. And, And while I say we maintained joy and Shabbat services, we also made a lot of room for memorial services and for funerals in which we could express our pain so that it was not like, let's move on quickly. Let's leave it behind. But to really make sure we carried the memory of those we've lost and that those who went through so much grief uh, would feel like they weren't being forgotten as the world moved on. And to make sure we learn the public health lessons and honestly, to make sure we have a government in place, whether it's local here in New York City, New York State, or the federal government, which is a government we can count on to help us respond to public health crises. And honestly, The best thing we could do, honestly, is to focus on the elections coming up. And the 2022 national election for Senate and House is going to be key in making sure that we continue to have a government that's committed to science and to implementing public health measures that will protect us all. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I agree with all of that. And 
I'll just tell you, when I think about my work and what it means to be a prosecutor and to look out for people's safety, I often try to sort of focus in my mind's eye, who is the most vulnerable person? Am I seeing her? Am I reaching her? The, the person who can't come forward to me and say, I don't feel safe, something happens to me. And I, I worry that this pandemic has pushed so many people even further out of sight. And I wonder if you can continue to sort of share from your experiences, who do you think is the most vulnerable in a period of recovery like this? Um, what should we be doing to make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind? I think we need to go out from behind our desks, so to speak. And that's so complicated in this period of COVID. We need to train people to go into communities and we need to train people in within the communities. You know, honestly, the barbers in... Black communities need to be the transmitters of information about the vaccine. There should be vaccinators inside of barbershops. There should be vaccinators in churches and synagogues and mosques. We have to be where people are. Just like the Black community is does the souls to the polls around elections, where after church, the minister or pastor will lead people on buses or walk over to election polls. We need to be doing that inside of the communities that are most at risk. And one of them here in New York City is the immigrant community, which is honestly so afraid of authorities and of being discovered that we need to find a way. CBST has an immigration, a legal clinic to help immigrants and right now we're starting a process of making sure every one of them are vaccinated. And so like our clinic, which has trusted uh, folks, can speak to the folks who come to our clinic and can help them get the vaccine because the folks who volunteer are themselves, many of them are immigrants. I'm reminded of a story when I first became a rabbi at CBST in the early 90s, a liberal colleague called me up and said uh, from Massachusetts that they had started a hotline in their synagogue that was staffed, you know, once a week uh, where people who had questions about AIDS could call the hotline and get information. And they had set it up, they publicized it, and they had volunteers from the synagogue sitting there. Nobody was calling. And I said, well, Rabbi, this is a rabbi colleague, what have you done to earn the trust of the LGBT community or of folks who might have AIDS? Why would they call your hotline? I said, if you want to help people with AIDS as a rabbi, you've got to go into the gay community and volunteer at an AIDS clinic. And there you'll be seen by people with AIDS and people will learn that you are a voice of respect. This idea that we'll go, we're going to be so progressive by inviting people into our space in order to get a important and needed service of some kind uh, doesn't work. I agree with you completely. It's something that I uh, have reflected on often in the last few years. And then, of course, um, what, what the pandemic did is that it exposed all of these inadequacies and these fissures and it made them worse. And of course, if people don't trust authority. I mean, we talk about the problem of trust as being really um, endemic in, in the criminal justice system. It, it can't work if there is no trust. And we need to earn that trust daily, not in the moment of crisis. We had a problem uh, when I was in the Brooklyn DA's office, uh, very noticeably uh, non-citizen women who were the victims of intimate partner violence basically stopped reporting crimes against them. And 
we came to understand it was because of ICE, right? Uh, so, you know, you, you mistrust one institution of government, of the law, and it becomes contagious, right? Uh, they were afraid that if they came to us, somehow somebody they care about, if not themselves, would get picked up at a courthouse and would just disappear. And they had to make these terrible choices. And, and in fact, we've seen that happen. Right. They weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. <laughs> Actually, yeah. They weren't wrong. Right. So, uh, so we sued ICE uh, in federal court and we said we can't actually, and we won. We got a statewide injunction to say that you can't do that. And one of the reasons is that it interferes with our ability to deliver on public safety. And the thing is, it's just one step, Rabbi, right? You know, we have to arrive at the moment of trust before people really need us. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I do worry now and I do worry that aside from trusting to come forward for a vaccine for health, um, that in a city of people that are just so traumatized and have lost their jobs um, and uh, families are dislocated and they're living with grief inside of their homes, that um, all of our work is going to become all the more challenging and all the more important at the same time. Elections matter. And I keep saying this to my people. It's not a vague concept. The Republicans, honestly, since Ronald Reagan, or maybe you could argue even before, but he really started institutionalizing it, really tried to create uh, a public opinion that government is bad and that government is not to be trusted. And really, and the current white supremacist takeover of the Republican Party at core of that, their argument is that government is bad. Donald Trump, what he tried to do as the leader of our government is to dismantle it. And now what we have to do is rebuild trust, which will not be easy, exactly as you described. And honestly, this the passage of this fantastic rescue act, we need to make sure that it is sustained, which is gonna require putting people into office, both here and a local level, and in Washington in uh, 2022 that makes sure that we have a majority uh, of those who care about government doing the right thing. I agree. And I think it's let me just go back a beat, because yeah, I sure. think it's important to emphasize what you said, that it isn't necessarily obvious that if you subscribe to a white supremacist ideology, you make the transition to wanting to destroy the institutions of government. But that is the dominant strain of white supremacy that we have seen, whether it's from Oklahoma City or January 6th, right? They're, they're not attacking non-governmental institutions. They're saying this thing uh, is, is an instrument of values that we don't agree with. And, and that's what we're up against. There's a direct line from Timothy McVeigh to what happened on January 6th, 6th in the, at the Capitol, a direct line. And we haven't taken that really seriously enough. I agree. I, I, I am going to pause to say I'm really pleased that my mentor, Judge Garland, who prosecuted Timothy McVeigh, is now the attorney general because he sees, <laughs> he sees the direct line. I'm thrilled that that Judge Garland is now our attorney general and that he has made and his opening statement was. This is the for my first priority is uh, to prosecute these white supremacists. And honestly, I'm very moved by him and his history and his family's relationship to the Holocaust. Some people learn from the Holocaust never again means never again only for Jews. And he, like I and so many of us, really believe that what we as Jews learned historically is that never again must mean never again for anyone. So Rabbi, that's a great transition because I wanted to talk to you about your identity as an activist. 
and a protester. And of course, you've protested um, for so many causes uh, that are not on their face Jewish causes. And so you've you've been out there on the travel ban and police brutality. Don't ask, don't tell. Nukes at the Pentagon. I think I read that you've been arrested 15 times. Uh, yeah, I've lost count. Yeah. So many times. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about those experiences. First of all, is there a memory of being arrested that stands out for you that that you learned something from that was enlightening in some way? Oh, so many. I feel like my experiences both of being arrested and I've spent time in federal prison in West Virginia and Alderson Federal Prison for women in West Virginia, you know, for peaceful civil disobedience. And honestly, the month that I spent in Alderson Federal Prison, if you want to understand inequities in America, go to a prison and a women's prison in particular. Most of the women that are there are there for economic crimes and where they've been uh, prosecuted or convicted of a violent crime. Usually they're driving the car for their boyfriend and the pain and suffering of the women in prison is unconscionable for this country and the mass incarceration that takes place for people who are black and brown that is all you have to do is walk in a prison look at what it looks like and know that this country doesn't have its values lined up correctly the experience of being there really showed in the you know in such a deep 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 way uh, what what has to be done to make this country live up to its greatest ideals, which I believe in every single day. I'm really glad that you talked about that experience among many, because the incarceration of women is, I think, grossly underreported. It is the fastest growing jail and prison population in the country. And I think we're only really beginning to understand um, why we have to think about that differently, you know, aside from the values that we're bringing to criminal justice reform and reducing mass incarceration writ large, uh, how do you, in our society, with the gender roles that exist, how do you wind up, in, you know, in this situation? In New York, we have a good new law, the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, domestic violence being defined really broadly. And of course, it's a law that applies to men and women that says we really have to think harder about the experiences that brought this person to wind up being convicted of a crime. But Rabbi, I also can't help just say, what's the story? Like, how did you wind up in a federal prison for a month, if you don't mind telling? Not at all. Uh, I was uh, part of something called the Women's Pentagon Action, which was a feminist anti-militarist group, which had a civil disobedience at the Pentagon. It was at the time that uh, the United States was placing um, Pershing and cruise missiles in Europe, targeting the Soviet Union. This is like 1979, 1980, 1981. So the Soviet Union still was the Soviet Union. And the United States was putting nuclear weapons in Europe. And there was a large and international movement, really, to try and protest the placement of these missiles in Europe. And so this was a feminist uh, uh, group and that we protested at the Pentagon. How shall we say we were not successful? Uh, we tried to weave the Pentagon shut in a feminist, you know, theater, performance theater, weaving the Pentagon shut with yarn, which didn't work. And by the way, I am a Gandhian by practice and by study. I studied in Gandhi as my um, college academic career, and it's a deep part of my spiritual life. 
So there's a deep sense in Gandhi that one has to be willing in moments of great crisis to uh, break the law. But if you do that, you have to be willing to take all consequences cheerfully and without protest, as Gandhi did that. Um, so I wasn't willing to uh, negotiate in those my youthful protest days and was willing to be incarcerated for the maximum for that sentence, which was 30 days. And by the way, Washington, D.C. is not a state, so it doesn't have any state prison facilities. So anybody who's charged and convicted in D.C. gets sent to a federal prison. That federal prison is 10 hours away from Washington, D.C., in the mountains of West Virginia. So a woman who's arrested for a, a state-level crime, but there's no state in Washington, D.C., gets sent to this federal prison 10 hours away. There is no public transportation. So how could their family even visit them? And the fact is that Rikers, while only being a few miles away, is also actually 10 hours away for many of the families uh, who want to get there and really on the list of reasons why it's just become so untenable for that to continue to be our main jail. Honestly, you know, another problem with the Rikers system is that I don't feel corrections officers are treated well in this city. They're paid so poorly and their training is so weak that we, if we look at the whole picture for New York City, we have to we have to treat our corrections officers and those who serve uh, in these facilities completely differently with a different training, a different level of compensation and uh, attract people who can function in a system a little bit better. I appreciate that empathy so much. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the most impactful experiences I've had has been to visit an experimental prison that the Vera Institute runs in Cheshire, Connecticut, in a maximum security facility. And the prison houses, it's a, it's a prison for men, and it houses lifers, so men who are serving life sentences who are usually older, with young men who are serving shorter sentences of a few years and will go back out into the world. And they live communally and almost kind of familial relationships develop between them. And there's a lot of freedom inside of their space. They go to school, they organize themselves, they can move around at will. And one of the many interesting reports uh, and it was so moving for me to hear this from the mouths of the corrections officers is how much better they're doing, how it's affected their well-being. So they're happier. Their blood pressure is lower. Their physical health is actually better. They reported lower rates of divorce. And I just thought that was so fascinating. You change the environment and uh, even beyond the, what you, I think, were aiming for in the first place. Right. And I think there's a lot of room for progressive activist movements to just like during the Vietnam War, we made a serious mistake in this country by demonizing the soldiers who went, many of whom are black and brown. Same is true of corrections officers. We need to reach out and say, let's fix this systemically. And there are ways to include them in that. Well, I hope you you lead the way on some of what you've talked about for us in thinking about, if I can even say, the vulnerability of police officers uh, and how complicated the position they are in. We have a majority minority police force. I know. And this I really learned Gandhi was very clear about this, that one must learn to see the humanity in everyone that we encounter. And our job is to reach out to people who might appear to be opponents in order to persuade them to the justice of our cause. You know, once I was arrested in a, with a, for um, related to the immigrant issue and we were in a van 
and the, uh, we were there for a while. And I said to everybody in the van, why don't we all introduce ourselves to each other, you know, in a police van. And, you know, they were all, they were, the whole group of them had been chanting, all New York cops are racist. I said, this is not really a, a great, a chant I can agree with. And I asked the police officer who was in the van with us to introduce ourselves. He was a early 30s Dominican immigrant who got to this country at the age of eight. This job he has on the New York City Police Force is the first job with benefits. He's a union member. He's able to have health insurance and a real living wage in New York City. And he's not the enemy. This guy told a great story. He said when he first came to New York when he was eight and didn't learn any English, didn't speak English at the time and learned it, of course, as a kid on the streets of the Bronx, he met a bunch of Jewish kids that he got to know. And it wasn't until he was in his early 20s that he understood the phrase Mazel Tov. He had heard it as an eight-year-old as Muscle Tough. <laughs> he thought, wow, Jews are so cool. They say to each other, Muscle Tough, you know, be strong. And... You know, people, these people in the van who had just been chanting New York cops are racist cops were now meeting a young Dominican guy for whom being a cop is a good job. And yes, there should be other jobs, but we cannot see individual policemen as the as the enemy as much as some are terrible and the system demonizes them and also sometimes makes them act in ways that are not OK and does not. And I believe in a system that holds them account, accountable. But the cops, the police are, are human beings. Yes. And when 90 plus percent of the calls that they're responding to are calls that don't necessarily call for force or law and might be better addressed by somebody else, or when they go to a violent situation or a situation with a mentally ill person not properly trained, they're not living the dream either. No, right? it's I terrible. mean, it's That's terrible for them too. System, there's a big system here. And as Gandhi has, Gandhi really taught in this very deep way, when Gandhi was arrested and brutalized by British, by the British authorities, he treated every single police officer with respect and he got to know them as human beings. And that means a lot to me. And I think that we have to understand that as much as we want the system to change, we want to demilitarize the police. We want to introduce reforms that bring in people who know how to handle mental health. I agree with you completely. And I I also worry, Rabbi, about the demoralization of prosecutors, because I think that at its deepest level, there is a debate in criminal justice reform about whether the institutions of law enforcement can be improved upon or whether it's just inherently violent uh, to to do this work. And obviously, I believe in the former. I want to model what is good law enforcement, good prosecution. And I see around me the idea that there's something shameful uh, in even performing this public function. And that scares me. You know, in my career, when I was a federal prosecutor, I was surrounded by people who felt so good about what they were doing justice in the temple of the law. And and then I came to, you know, local prosecution later in my career. And I really felt this sort of sense of isolation and sadness. And I think all of us suffer if that idea takes root and stays. And to go back to our conversation about trust, that's not a formula for trust. Right. I completely agree. You know, I once had uh, the occasion to speak with the prosecutor in the DA's office who prosecutes sex crimes. And I went into her office uh, to talk to her about something. And she, in her office, is full of boxes of papers on every 
shelf and I asked her, what are all these boxes doing in your office? She said to me, these are all the female uh, victims of murder that happened in New York City that have not been solved. I keep them in front of me every day because I want to remember that my job every day is to try and bring some justice to these families and to the women who were killed. And she keeps the boxes with the names or the Jane Doe's in her office. So every day she remembers that part of her job is to bring justice to them. Love that. You have talked about Judaism being a part of how you think about changing the world, eradicating violence, um, ending injustice. And I too, I, I don't, I, that is just baked into what I am trying to do in the world and really the way I've tried to live my life. And this is, you're a rabbi, and this is the last episode of this season of hearing. And I wonder if you could just end by giving me some rabbinic counsel on how you think I ought to be incorporating Jewish ideas uh, into this work that is so much more universal. Abraham Joshua Heschel said in 1944, when the world was pretty bleak, he got out of Europe on a scholar's visa, but was not allowed to bring his mother and his sisters. And he was desperate during that time of the 40s to get them out. He fought very hard and was not successful. And in 1944, he wrote, can you imagine the middle of his grief and his anger and his frustration? He said, as evil as the fascists are, our job is to be that degree good. So I consider that my challenge. As bad as the evil is around you, as bad as the bad is, can you figure out how to wake up every day and be that degree good, that degree bringing justice, that degree increasing the light, that degree making more holiness in the world? We live in a broken world, in a world that is seeking, desperate for redemption. It's too easy to become overwhelmed by how big the problems are. And the most important thing, I say this to each of us, is to figure out where we are in our own places in which we can increase the holiness in the world and decrease the injustice or the ugliness. There's a famous line that Mordechai says to Esther in the story of Purim, which takes place in the Persian uh, town of Shushan. And he says to her, maybe for this, you were born. Because of this moment in history, exactly as complicated and messy it is, you have something to bring the world and we need whatever it is you have to offer. Thank you for that, Rabbi. And I take one other thing away from what Mordechai said to Esther, which is, he was also telling her, you know, now she's the queen of the realm. Any kind of power or privilege you have, you have to use it for the good, for your underlying values. So you may be redeemed, but the people around you have not been redeemed. Absolutely. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali and Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. I am running to be district attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. 
If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please go to tally48.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to sit down with so many incredible, big-hearted people on this show, and I hope to share more of these conversations with you on future episodes of Hearing. Until then, I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.